updates again on Thursday, December 23rd, 2021 at 4.06 p.m. Pacific Standard Time in Chile, Southern Cali in Los Angeles County on the West Coast. Still heavy rain cold air think and write on your social media a post ask people to write a word that starts with A and ends with A here are some that people posted on Facebook Aurora, Anaconda, Appalachia, Asthma, and one guy, (laughs) one guy wrote, Anti-Disestablishmentarianism, capital A on the, on the end, (laughs) okay. Isma, is Isma. <laughs> oh well. Anesthesia, asthma, alpha, apnea. A p n e a, as in sleep. Apnea, where people stop breathing, have difficulty breathing. Oh, here's one. Ataraxia. That one I never ever saw before. I saw ataxia. A T A X I A. Having to do with oh, difficulty walking, if I recall. <laughs> Abba, A-B-B-A, the best musical group ever, is what one person said. AstraZeneca, that's two words. A-A, those, that's two words, two letters. Atlanta, America, oh well. I'm giving you all of these, spoiling it for your for your list. Agenda Africa Anomatapia Anama Tapea P E I A. Hmm. Nana Aha Amoeba Arabica Arepa Alpha Alfalfa Academia Agoraphobia give that one a like 
I wanted to hop back on to to read some of the list some of the books in the list I told you about before twice before I think I mentioned a couple of times that excuse me that Barack Obama had sent out his favorite movie and book books for music movies and books for 2021 all right here we go it's uh chapter but I don't know if I can get all of it Uh, I had to take a photograph Here's um, Nobody by Nas featuring Miss Lauren Hill. Night Flyer by Allison A-L-L-I-S-O-N Russell R-U-S-S-E-L-L Night Liar N I G H T F L Y E R. Maybe I can click on it and stretch it. Yeah, stretch it. This is stretch this. Montero. Montero, M-O-N-T-E-R-O, Call Me By Your Name, this song is by Lil Nas X, spelled L-I-L-N-A-S, two words, with an X on the end, Lil Nas X. The next one, Patria y Vida. Okay, that's Spanish. P-A-T-R-I-A, Patria, then the letter Y. And the next word is V, like Victor, I-D-A. Patria and 
feeder or feeder by your dwell your dwell y o t u e l hinte de sona g e n t e d e capital z o n a hinte de sona These are all the people or artists for that one song. Patria, Patria y Vida. The first uh, artist is Yatuel and Gente de Sona. The next artist, there's one, two, three, all of them for the one song, Patria y Vida. If you Google one name, you should get all of them with the, the, if you Google the title of the song and the author's, author's or artist's name, all the others should come up. So, Patria y Vida is Yo Toile, Gente de Zona, Decimer, Decimer Bueno. Michael Osorbo and El Fonke. Well, we'll finish with Patria. The next one is Notice by Tammany Lakis. Looks like T A M I N Y L A K K. I S notice N O T I C E. Oh, Freddy. This I have to click and stretch and click some more because I had to photograph everything and. Photograph it, and now I have to stretch it and click. And it's taking it extra time. All right, another song looks like "Freedom" by Jean Baptiste. Freedom, F R E E. Excuse me. Throw this dry. Let me get some water for my throat. Staying hydrated with water, fruit juice, and fruit and vegetable, <coughs> and it's really working. Oh yeah, can't beat that. And the spray, I had to use spray in my nostrils. And ointment in the eyes because the viral load here in Southern California, we 
we have so many different people from all over the world. So we have a lot of viruses, whether it's a pandemic or not. So I have to spray and wash my nostrils clean. The inside of my eyes all the time, my ears, everything. So I use this ointment that you can put in your eyes. It's just over the counter, not from a prescription. It contains um, mineral oil and white petroleum, but it's uh, for the eye, so you can't just take every day off the shelf unless it's specifically designed for the eye. But it's a little tube of ointment you can put in your eye, and it's taken, oh my goodness, over a month now to finally get my eyes to stop burning. But I had to wash them all day, every day, with uh, extra mild baby shampoo and gauze, sterile gauze. And um, now for over a month, put ointment in them. And it seemed like it was slowly getting better. But I... um, started drinking this uh, blue machine is blueberry juice with other fruit juices for the eyes and taking bilberry extract in the capsules from the health food store and then spraying my nostrils with um it's called Silver Soul, but it contains um, pharmacy grade uh, spring water and um, pharmacy grade nickel and other pharmaceuticals. So I sprayed my sinuses because it, the nostrils were just on fire. <laughs> You know, I made the mistake of going to a crowded area, even with a lot of masks, paper masks, at least two, and then a cloth mask, three layers on top of all the paper masks, and then I put more paper masks on the outside of the cloth mask. But, oh my goodness, when I left that crowded mall, in, I'd say in 24 hours, I I could feel the difference. I could feel the difference. But um, a relative had posted, yesterday posted this uh, yoga video, video, a yoga video by Jennifer Turpin Stanfield. It's already been posted to this podcast. So I stretched and stretched and stretched. And so finally, over the last month of doing everything that I could, finally, things are going under control, calming down the sinuses, the inside of the eyes, the the, uh, 
metabolism, health, and everything is uh, is stepped up. It's a big, big difference. But um, you know, I have to admit that I brought that on myself because I, I, you know, like anybody else, I get in a zone where. I get sick and tired of the same old rabbit food <laughs> of vegetables and fruit. I get so sick of that, and then I want to, you know, switch up, and then that's where my my good health starts to uh, protest, protest and rebel, and everything starts to get inflamed. Oh yeah, the uh, pineapple, the fruit, and the juice. Using that, that stops a lot of inflammation, irritation. Even without all that other stuff, you, I get relief from that. So, I'm trying to stay hydrated because it's it's uh, easy to get hydrated dehydrated no matter how many things you do right in a, in certain seasons as they call it flu season and pandemic season we really have to stay hydrated so we need to flush everything out but um okay I digress. There was a song, Freedom, F-R-E-E-D-O-M, by Jean-Baptiste, J-O-N, capital B-A-T-I-S-T-E, Freedom, Jean-Baptiste. The next song looks like, It's Way With Me, by Way Oak. It's Way W A Y with me, and the singer is Way W Y E Oak A. Correction Oak O A K Oak O A K. I realize not. Every English-speaking country spells English the way that we do in North America. So I try to remember to spell things out. Okay, let's scroll and click and stretch some more. There's a long, long list and um, we're going to just take a few right now this song Barack Obama's 2021 Spotify oh well if you download the Spotify app and you go onto the it's a free app SP O T I F Y Spotify. It's a music app. 
podcasts and music and other media. If you download the app from your app store, you play or Apple store or Spotify.com online, you can get their app and you could also check Barack Obama's 2021 music list or music playlist. It says, he wrote, and here's a reminder of the songs I had on my summer playlist. Let me stretch this out. Oops, what happened? Oh my goodness. My page jumped. Alright, we're back to the right page. Number one, and this is not the whole list. This is just the top three. Pick up your feelings. Pick up your feelings. P-I-C-K. Pick up. U-P. Your. Y-O-U-R. Feelings. F-E-E-L-I-N-G. Yes, pick up your feelings. And the artist, the singer, is Jasmine Sullivan. Jasmine with a Z. J-A-Z-M-I-N-E. Sullivan. S-U-L-L-I-V-A-N. Jasmine Sullivan sings. Pick up your feelings. Number two, switch it up by Proto Hey. And the other one is cut off. A couple of the names are cut off. It's P R O T O J. E pro tohe pro tohe switch it up. Number three is holding back the years. Oh, by simply red holding h o l d i n g holding back b a c k holding back the years. T-H-E Years Y-E-A-R-S Holding back The years Simply read S-I-M P-L-Y And the color red R-E-D Holding back The years By simply read That one always sounds good no matter what time of the year. And a bit of sad news. Kim Potter, ex-Minnesota police officer, found guilty of manslaughter. Two counts, first degree and second degree. 
first degree is uh, reckless in, in Minnesota. Second degree is culpable. So they were saying she was thoughtless, hasty, um, careless, and um, that it was foreseeable and avoidable that she caused the death of a, a citizen Dante Wright in a traffic stop Kim Potter P-O-T-T-E-R ex-Minnesota police officer found guilty of two counts of manslaughter in death of Dante Wright She meant to use her taser and fired her gun instead. Dante Wright, a 20-year-old black man father. He was stopped because he had a a car that a new car that was just given to him. So he wasn't aware of probably too much in a 20 year old in our our country North America may or may not know a lot about the Department of Motor Vehicle laws rules regulations it's always changing always adding always deleting a person this that age and just getting a, a nice car a new father, they may be sort of excited and may not notice certain things, may not even know certain things about uh, the care and responsibilities involved in maintaining and driving a, a car. So they, they have this, believe it or not, they have this law in Minnesota. It's against the law to have a car air freshener hanging from your rear view mirror that's on your front windshield. There's a mirror in most cars and some of the older models. You can hang a tiny little, it looks like a Christmas tree or a a fruit or it's just a little tiny piece of cardboard graphic that's been soaked in some sort of aroma flavor so you can hang those from your mirror but they have this stupid law that says it's against the law to do that so he was stopped for that and then the vehicle plates was run through their DMV and apparently there was some sort of a a warrant misdemeanor warrant for some sort not sure what it was all about or even who whose name was on the warrant whether it was Dante Wright or the registered owner or the seller of the car or who 
who knows but you know in California I would hope that he would have had a chance to um, at least explain to the officer his situation at least get one warning and before you just start tasering us oh I don't get it I don't get it guys but he ends up dead like so many other men and women all colors but especially if they're black or brown they end up dead sight unseen no questions asked and the other side of that let's keep it real let's keep it balanced the police are in fear of their lives too always have been frankly it's um you know it's it's not talked about enough it never has been talked about it enough of course in past years they've done a lot toward trying to show how dangerous police work is they've had a lot of TV shows trying to show this but you know it's something about the television and the media it really can't show what it I guess you know what it's like to be close up anybody can take a drive along request a drive along go to the police station request a drive along and pick a day a time that works for you go on patrol with a police officer and you will never in your life more than likely you will never in your life want to repeat that experience and you would you would forever see the police work differently I can't say it's all horrible that's not right because there's so many just so many citizens that you know just wonderful citizens so many wonderful people but there's still that danger it only takes one dangerous radio call one dangerous citizen you know whether you're a police officer or everyday citizen wow now things just seem to be far more dangerous for no reason you know the store clerks if you look on the on the different platforms, media sites, store clerks are being physically assaulted for basically no reason. You know, there's people that are attacking parents for putting masks on their children. And I mean, none of it makes sense, but it's happening. So we have to be careful. We have to be safe. People that are anti-mask that are attacking people that have masks and people that are attacking other people really for no reason. 
they feel justified. They feel slighted or hurt, upset about something. So, yes, everybody needs to be treated with dignity. Whether or not they're having a mental health crisis or whether they're just intentionally, willfully, negligently attacking and assaulting other people. That's something that has to be sorted out too. But as a general rule, everybody deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. So if they want to put masks on their children, that's their prerogative. If they don't, that's their prerogative. Of course, they know that there's consequences. And if they're willing to take the consequences, then they've made their decision. It's not for me to jump in their face, yell and scream at them, take the masks off of their children, off of them. No, nobody should be treated that way. But this is what's happening, so be careful. And back to my point is that this police officer, if I was the judge in that case, I would have had the jury spend at least eight hours one day during their jury service in a patrol car with um, with police officers in um, you know different scenarios in so-called hot spots where it's very so-called very dangerous on highways where they're making traffic stops and they're standing outside their car. Other cars are intentionally trying to run the officer over. You know, with so many, so many different dangerous scenarios, scenarios that the police officers, highway patrol officers, anyone in uniform encounters. No, it's not it's not good enough just to say lock her up, throw away the key. It's not good enough to just say that. Because what are you going to eventually find yourself doing? Locking up everybody that's enforcing the law? If you say like so many people say Uh, defund defund the police uh, get rid of the police okay when you're the victim of a violent crime um, when your home is burglarized when you're taken hostage when someone puts a gun in your face and when anything like this that happens that a police is trained to handle, when that happens, then what? You know, have has this been thought out carefully? So, you know, I, I just don't see things as win-lose. 
there's one for this side, one zero for that side. I don't see this as a game. You know, we're talking about life and death. And what could be more important? But unfortunately, it has become politicized and racialized for too many decades, centuries, really. The police in North America was started as slave patrol bounty hunters. And um, it's basically been practiced that way in the black community or the brown community. So how do you undo hundreds of years of... uh, You you can't even call that policing. Just um, bounty hunting. How can you undo that? Then on the other hand, you can't look at the police and say, well, he's this race or he's that gender. You just can't look at that alone and say, well, we don't need his services. No. Go on a ride along. See for yourself. Your tax dollars are paying for those patrolmen, patrol women, and the cars that they drive. Go see what your money is paying for. And you may want to write an anthology, not just one book. But when you see it up close and personal, you know, it's one thing if you're a civilian and you talk to a stranger, you get a certain reaction. If that's, if you put on that police uniform, you talk to that same civilian, it's on a different level. It's a whole different level, so... You know, we can't judge the police officers by our everyday human-to-human contact. They'll never be the same. Unfortunately, too many officers are in uniform that have no business. No business. And unfortunately, you may not find that out until 26 years later. This woman was on the job for 26 years, trained other officers, was a supervisor for crises and negotiations. That's not the same as hostage. Hostage is only one element of crisis negotiation. Well, I'm rattling on. I was on my way to find something else, but I saw that one. Yeah, that's unfortunate that things have devolved the way they have there's so too many too many good officers that are being tainted and punished for for this and and not to, to even mention that the 
politics that the officers have to deal with internally inside their department. You know, there's a a fire department story that um, Dr. Rashad Ritchie has the website Indisputable and he has a story there about this fire department all but three of the firemen I think they had maybe ten or not more than a dozen firemen an assistant fire chief and a fire chief so that would make about a dozen in that small area and at least 10 other firemen quit because the new chief that was appointed to replace the former chief had been the assistant fire chief but he was appointed as the fire chief simply because his father ran all the emergency services, ran the police department, fire department, all the emergency management services was run by his father. So they appointed him as the police chief. And that alone would be enough to make them want to quit, damage their morale. But it turns out that this guy they appointed as fire chief had been convicted yes convicted on more than one count of arson yes I mean you can't make this up you want an arsonist on your fire department I don't think so a known convicted arsonist absolutely hell to the no <laughs> you know you you clearly putting all the citizens lives in his hands in the hands of an arsonist hell to the no you know if you don't care about people don't go into public service you know, because these are everyday scenarios the life of public citizens that you serve, their life is in your hands. And yes, you may have power that they don't have, but they give you the power for what? To preserve their life, to protect their life, not to threaten their life. So, You see, this is why there's so many unhappy citizens. They are absolutely done with the way things are being run now. So, and they should be, you know, they should be. But then when someone that really cares about their life, really wants to serve them, and do the best possible job, no matter what it costs, whether it costs their lives or whatever they want to serve, give their life to serve and protect others. 
when they come in, then what happens? They get painted with the same brush that the arsonists in charge of the fire department or whoever else doesn't belong there. The good and the bad get painted, you know. So good on the guys that, the firemen that took off their uniform and quit on the spot when they put that arsonist in charge and they filed a class action lawsuit. So uh, they won't be out of work for long. (laughs) There will be some changes, whether or not you're, you know, this is what they call nepotism. And this is why you need unions and you need a good morale in your workforce because there's got to be equity. People know when they're not being treated equally. They know. And they're not going to stand for it. Okay, I digress. Back to Barack Obama's favorite Spotify music playlist. Three more songs. Number one, The Only Heart Breaker by Mitski. The Only Heart Breaker. H-E-A-R-T-B-R-E-A-K-E-R. Heartbreaker, one word. Mitski. M-I-T-S-K-I. One word. The Only Heartbreaker. Mitski. And song number two. I don't live here anymore. I don't live here anymore. By the war on drugs, Lucius. The war on drugs, Lucius. It's spelled L-U-C-I-U-S. And song number three. Tala Tanam Two words Tala T-A-L-A Tanam Capital T-A-N-N A-M Tanam Tala Tanam By the singer Mdu Maktar M-D-O is spelled capital M-D-O-U. Maktar spelled capital M-O-C-T-A-R. Okay. And do we have any more? I think we, we're getting close to running out of time. This must be a book. 
from Obama's reading list, a book, Things We Lost to the Water. Oh, now this is either a book or a movie, but I'm guessing it's a book because these names, these are authors' names, yeah. Things We Lost to the Water. Eric Wynn. Eric is E-R-I-C. Wynn is N-G-U-Y-E-N. Wynn. Things We Lost to the Water. Hmm. You know who else has a book with a title? Close to that. Tanahasi Coates. Okay, that was Things We Lost to the Water. Eric Wynn. The next book, Leave the World Behind. Leave the World Behind by Rumaan Alam. Leave the world behind. Ruma An is spelled capital R U M A A N. Alam is spelled A L A M. Alam. Number three, Clara and the Sun by Kasao Ishikuro. Clara is spelled with a K L A R A. Clara and the Sun S U N. Clara and the Sun. By Kazao K A Z U O Ishiguro I S H I G U R O Clara and the Sun Kazao Ishiguro The Sweetness of water number four the sweetness of water the sweetness of water by Nathan Harris Nathan N A T H A N Nathan Harris capital H A R R I S the sweetness of water the sweetness of water by Nathan Harris number five intimacies and the name is covered maybe I can shrink it Katie Kitamura 
intimacies i n t i m a c i e s intimacies by k t k a t i e k t kitamura k i t a m u r a Intimacies by Katie Kitamura. Alrighty, got some more. It's taking a long time, so we're almost out of time. So I'll rush through the last ones. Or maybe we could find some music and do another episode with more books and music right now we can listen to Facebook has all this music now and last night they came up with Spotify you can connect your Facebook to Spotify and listen to their music on Spotify so let's discover black artists that's a new option some of these names I don't know let's hear Lauren Hill I get out live always a winner always a winner yep let's see who else um Kilani oh, we only have uh, about four minutes and a few seconds who else public enemy I'm not feeling like any fight songs Toby in weak way I never heard this one it's called I'm dope That's why. 
Well, happy for him. Miss Badu told him. Oh, you can't tell him. All right. Let's see. Is this a lady? Give the ladies a chance. Victoria Monet called Die. See what your head game like. Do you know what you're doing? Is your neck game tight? Do you know how to use it? Have a long conversation with me. I talk back, baby. We can get deep. I wanna see, see what your head game like. Do you know what you're doing? Is your neck game tight? Do you know? Well, I don't know if I agree with her sentiments. <laughs> it's kind of ambiguous. Outcast liberation. There's a fine line between love and hate. You see, came way too late, but baby, I'm on it. There's a fine line between love. There's a fine line between love and hate. You see, came way too late, but baby, I'm on it. Outcast, always something good from Outcast. Uh, maybe we can hear Atlanta Freestyle by Six Lack or Slack. Really got me fucked up. Oops. Taking out the trash on your ass, I get rid of bad friends like a dump truck. Everything I've been through is everything I am. I'm going to try to not get trapped <laughs> in 2022. I get trapped into uh, listening to new artists or new uh, videos or something new. And they always surprise me. So they'll drop up. F bomb or this bomb or that bomb and you know it's good to be open minded I don't want to be an old fogey but I'm not into too much gratuitous stuff no matter what your age is alright this is a piano song called find myself by Finn, F-I-N-N. Uh-oh, I cut him off too quick. And of course, we love Petter B. Helland. Listen to his piano. Feelings. Peter, P-E-D-E-R. B, middle initial B. Helland, H-E-L-L-A-N-D. We're out of time, so enjoy your holidays. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Thank you for listening and supporting.
Minnesota police officer guilty in the killing of Dante Wright. The jury finding Kim Potter guilty on both counts of manslaughter for the deadly shooting of Wright, a 20-year-old man. Potter testified she had mistaken her gun for her taser. The former officer led away from the courtroom in handcuffs. The reaction from Wright's family and how long Potter could spend behind bars. Also tonight, the FDA approving a second pill to treat COVID as Omicron rages across the country. New York City scaling back its New Year's Eve celebration in Times Square and the new UK study on Omicron, what it found about the risk of hospitalization. The holiday travel rush just two days until Christmas, over 100 million on the roads. Air travel now topping pre-pandemic levels. And the hero TSA agent leaping into action to save a baby's life. The deadly winter storm on the move, flooding it up to nine feet of snow. We're tracking it. Former President Trump taking his fight with the January 6th committee all the way to the Supreme Court. Vladimir Putin taking new aim at the U.S. and what he said about the possibility of war with Ukraine and celebrating one of America's all-time greatest authors. This is NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt. Good evening. A former Minnesota police officer is back in custody and likely facing prison time. Whether Kim Potter meant to fatally shoot Dante Wright, a jury in effect today said she should have known better. They found the one-time Brooklyn Center officer guilty on two counts of manslaughter. Rejecting her defense that she mistakenly fired her gun instead of a taser during a struggle with Mr. Wright. It's where we start tonight with Ron Allen. We, the jury on the charge of manslaughter in the first degree, while committing a misdemeanor, find the defendant guilty. Tonight, a jury finding former police officer Kimberly Potter guilty of first and second degree manslaughter in the death of Dante Wright. Potter supported by her attorneys as the verdicts were read. Outside the courthouse, cheers for justice. Prosecutors argued Potter made rash and reckless choices when the former officer shot and killed the 20-year-old during a traffic stop. Potter saying she thought she was firing her taser when she shot Wright with her gun. Wright's mother. The moment that we heard guilty on the um, manslaughter one, emotions, every single emotion that you could imagine just running through your body at that moment. The fatal incident in a suburb of Minneapolis last April, captured by numerous police body cameras. Officers stopped Wright because of an illegal air freshener and expired license plate tabs, and then tried to take him into custody after a records check revealed an outstanding arrest warrant for a case involving a weapon. Dante Wright caused his own death, unfortunately. But that's, that, those are the cold hard facts, the evidence. While prosecutors argued an unarmed right posed no threat. I would have preferred had Dante Wright followed the commands and not tried to flee. Sure. Does that absolve her from liability? Does that allow her to shoot him to death? It does not. Tonight, Potter denied bail and escorted out of court in handcuffs, facing up to 15 years in prison. We have a degree of accountability for Dante's death. Accountability is not justice. Justice would be restoring Dante to life and making the Wright family whole again. But accountability is an important step, a critical, necessary step on the road to justice for us all. 
When Potter was taken into custody, the judge made a point of saying that the former police officer should be treated the same as anyone else convicted of such a serious crime. Sentencing is set for February 18th. Prosecutors have said they will argue for the longest sentence possible. Lester? Ron Allen in Minnesota tonight. Thank you. Our other major story, America pressing headlong into the Christmas weekend under a spreading shadow of COVID-19, and things are moving very quickly. New York State reports 39,000 new positives, more than 22,000 of them in New York City. Illinois, a new single-day record of nearly 19,000 cases. Florida, close to a daily record, almost 27,000 new infections reported on Wednesday. And here in Los Angeles, just over 8,600 new cases reported today. That's more than double what we saw on Tuesday. The sheer numbers are absolutely daunting, but the severity of cases seen in Omicron's wake so far are encouraging. Miguel Almaguer now with the latest. Two days before Christmas, these are not the traditional lines Americans are used to waiting in. Holiday cheer turning to frustration as the anxious wait for testing. I did one yesterday where I waited for two hours. With testing sites overwhelmed, today New York City with a gift for the few. We test, we test. Some 10,000 at-home test kits handed out for free in a city of more than 8 million. It's a very tiny amount for all the people that want to test before the holidays, and it's really sad, and the system is a little broken. Americans are getting tested for good reason. For a third day in a row, Omicron has fueled more than 200,000 positive cases. But as the U.S. death toll tops 2,000 a day, there appears to be hopeful news in the United Kingdom. The U.K. health agency says data suggests Omicron patients are 50 to 70 percent less likely to require hospitalization than those with Delta. The FDA today authorized a second COVID pill for emergency use, this one from Merck. In patients who are at high risk for uh, COVID-19 complications, there was a 30% reduction in the risk of hospitalizations and deaths. That's less effective than Pfizer's pill, but an additional tool as Delta devastates hospitals. We've seen so many deaths. Doctors and nurses simply can't keep pace with the crushing wave of new patients flooding through their doors right now. We're treating patients in the lobby, in the hallway. We have patients waiting hours and days for beds upstairs. Having already eclipsed Delta's surge, some believe Omicron could trigger a million new cases a day. And while the celebration will go on in Times Square, this New Year's will be different. Revelers need to be fully vaccinated and wear masks outdoors as the crowd shrinks from 58 to 15,000. As our nation looks to the future, we take with us lessons from the past, the pandemic taking no break for the holiday. Miguel joining me now. Miguel, there's late word on new CDC guidance on quarantine rules for healthcare workers who were exposed to COVID. What do we know? Well, that's right, Lester. Healthcare workers who have caught COVID only need to isolate for seven days and they can return to work with a negative test. That time frame can be shortened even more if the hospital they're working at is in a crisis. As for healthcare workers who are fully vaccinated and boosted, they won't need to isolate at home anymore if they've been exposed. All of this underscores the dire staffing shortages at hospitals nationwide. Lester.
Miguel Almaguer in a rainy Los Angeles. Thank you. And we are tracking a deadly winter storm on the move on the West Coast tonight. Authorities say two bodies were recovered, a car submerged in floodwaters after heavy rain near San Francisco. And emergency evacuations have been ordered after cracks were found in a dam in Northern California. Up to nine feet of snow is expected in the region. The city of Portland declaring a state of emergency. The storm hitting as holiday travel gets into full swing. And Tom Costello has what you need to know before hitting the road. Eager for a Christmas escape, Americans have been on the move all day. From I-95 to I-5, east to west, I-90 to I-10, north to south. Madison crews opting to drive 700 miles to avoid potential COVID exposure while flying. The potential of taking it home to our families who are all coming from different places is just too much of a risk. Gas prices higher than last year, but coming down. Unleaded now averaging $3.29 a gallon. A 500-mile trip from Dallas to Kansas City costing $66 in gas, $2 cheaper than a Thanksgiving. In Virginia, State Trooper Sean Hovenden on watch today. A top concern nationwide, distracted, impaired driving, and speed. Speeding surged 11% last year pushing a big spike in fatal crashes. Virginia drivers recently ticketed for doing 106, 115, even 140 miles per hour. Mm -hmm. Just last night, a trooper who'd stopped a speeder escaped injury after his car was hit by an allegedly impaired driver. The same happened to Trooper Hovenden, hit by a distracted driver. He rolled his vehicle upside down and landed next to me. Luckily, he had minor scratches. Meanwhile, from clogged roads to clogged airports. The TSA reports screening 2 million passengers Wednesday, slightly more than pre-pandemic 2019. We're all vaccinated, you know, we all got our boosters. And tonight, a Newark TSA officer is being hailed as a hero. A veteran EMT, Cecilia Morales, climbed over a TSA belt to perform the Heimlich and save a choking baby. Back here in Northern Virginia tonight, some breaking news. A state trooper's car hit and rolled by a driver who then fled down the highway, leading police on a chase. He was caught, the police officer taken to a nearby hospital. Lester? All right, Tom, be careful out there. Thank you. Now to the battle over the Capitol riot investigation. Former President Trump asking the Supreme Court today to block the January 6th committee from getting his White House records after two lower courts rejected his claims of executive privilege. The committee had asked the court to rule quickly on the appeal. Tough talk today from Russia's Vladimir Putin at his annual end-of-the-year news conference. Putin pointing fingers at the U.S. amid rising tensions with Ukraine. We get more from Keir Simmons. President Putin openly wielding a diplomatic carrot and stick at his news conference today. New satellite images this week show Russia's continuing military escalation on Ukraine's border. But the Russian leader suggesting talks with the U.S. are gaining traction. And war with Ukraine is not inevitable. We don't want that. It is not our choice. At other times, Putin sounding belligerent, directly addressing Western leaders with uncompromising demands. You must give us the guarantees. It is up to you, and you must do this immediately, right now. The Kremlin insists NATO abandon military activity in Eastern Europe and not admit Ukraine as a member, righting wrongs, Putin believes, from the Gorbachev era. But that draft Kremlin treaty, already rejected by Washington, ahead of potential negotiations in early January. We just haven't finalized the details of those, so that's really the next step. 
Meanwhile, tonight, a ceasefire reinstated in eastern Ukraine, meaning one Ukrainian official said today, the holidays should be peaceful. The question tonight, is President Putin deliberately insisting on the impossible, forcing any talks to fail, or is he negotiating? The answer may determine war or peace in Ukraine. Lester? Kira Simmons in London, thank you. In just 60 seconds, are you dreaming of a white Christmas? The impact climate change is having on the holiday and paying tribute to a legendary American author. If you're hoping for a white Christmas this year, well, as the song goes, you may only be seeing that in your dreams. Emily Ikeda on how climate change could mean less snowfall on Christmas and beyond. Holiday classics may need a rewrite as the chance for snow on Christmas <laughs> seems to be melting. Christmas Day will be sunny and bright. The first week of winter bringing forecast highs near 50 degrees in New York and 60 in Denver, which recently saw its latest first snow in 87 years. It's really hard to get in the holiday spirit when it's not snowing. It makes me feel a little disappointed. Many shelving their hats and gloves over the holiday as the majority of cities in the U.S. see a decreased chance of a white Christmas. Climate scientists at NOAA looked at 1,500 locations and found differences in the last decade are consistent with the reality of long-term warming. In the 1980s, nearly half of the country had snow on the ground on Christmas. In recent years, that number was below 40%. Are our chances for a white Christmas drying up? Yes, in many areas of the country they are. A lot of people scratching their head as to why they're going to wake up on Christmas morning for perhaps five, six, seven years in a row without snow. Like snowflakes, the changes may be subtle with big implications. Odds of snow for Santa down 3% in Des Moines, Iowa, 4% in our nation's capital, and 6% in Denver. These trends that we're seeing in extreme weather like snowfall or lack thereof are all really fundamentally being changed by climate, and they're being changed in very small ways that actually accumulate up to big impacts. A difference that means that white Christmas may be a thing of the past. Emily Ikeda, NBC News. All right, stay close up next, an in-depth look at the challenges facing foster kids. What happens when they get too old for the system? One of the great American writers has died, Joan Didion, the iconic essayist, novelist, and journalist, passed away from Parkinson's disease. Didion was known for her incisive and deeply personal work. Her book, The Year of Magical Thinking, about the death of her husband, won the National Book Award in 2005. She was 87. For the hundreds of thousands of American kids without parents or guardians, the U.S. foster care system is a lifeline, albeit an imperfect one. But what happens when they grow too old to stay in that system? Where can they turn? Here's Cynthia McFadden with that story. Dimitri Dunn never really had much of a chance. I've been in the system since I was seven days old, my entire life. Yeah. Passing through 15 families or group homes in California. And it was just back to back, change, 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 move, move. Does it make it hard to trust people? Most definitely. I don't trust anybody at all. There may be one exception to that. Franco Vega, who vowed when he got out of the military, he'd help kids who were as lost as he was when he aged out of foster care. All our kids need is one caring adult. We get a kick out of it when we see a kid like Dimitri who comes in hopeless and now he's hopeful. Franco has just been that steady uh, arm to me. It's like, I don't know what to do. I call Franco. 
But even Vegas's help can't fix the problem he's now facing. Dimitri, like 25,000 other kids across the country, is poised to age out of the ever-troubled foster care system. I think I'm still in survival mode right now. I'm barely making it. I pay five seventy-five a month for this space. His finances are about to get worse. That's because the $1,000 he gets from the state each month is about to come to an end. Usually that would have happened last year when he turned 21. But due to COVID, California is continuing the payment until the end of this month. It's really like this tightrope that you're walking. And, uh, you know, just, just one little bump is enough to sever the rope. That's how it feels. He dropped out of high school to get a job, but now makes only $500 a week. I tend to have days where I just don't need at all. He has no idea how to open a bank account, cook a meal, or file his taxes. He's not ready. His basic needs aren't being met. And it's not just money. Vega says Dimitri, like most kids in long-term foster care, is hobbled by the trauma of just being in the system. Do you think... An awful lot of kids feel that what's happened to them is their fault. Oh, yes, definitely. We spend hours just telling them it's not your fault, but it is your life. An that angry teenager at 14, Dimitri tells me he entered a house intent on robbing it and assaulted the woman who lived there. He wishes he could take it back and make it right. Ginger Pryor understands Dimitri's struggles. I've been in the foster care, working in the foster care system for 30 years. Have things gotten any better in 30 years? In some aspects, I think that they have, but in many aspects, they haven't. She helps run the foster care system in L.A. County, currently monitoring 30,000 kids. It's estimated that a third of the kids who age out have experienced homelessness, that one in four end up spending at least one night in prison within two years. Not a pretty picture. I'm not even going to tap dance around that and say oh, that that doesn't happen. It does. We still have a lot of work to do. What do you want to have people understand about your life so far? I do want them to know that even though my life hasn't been the greatest, it hasn't been easy, that I'm still out here trying. Just know that I'm playing catch up with the, the rest of you guys. Catch up and happily move on. A relative of one of his first foster families has just offered to take Dimitri in. Welcome news this holiday season is way too many kids still have no place to go home to. Cynthia McFadden, NBC News, Los Angeles. Up next for us tonight, lessons from the last year as we look ahead to 2022. Finally, tonight in the category of really lousy years, it might be hard to top 2020. But let's face it, 2021 hasn't been much of a prize either as Omicron tries to write the year's final chapter. But we've also got some say in how this year closes out. It has been a year defined in those early months by hope and later setbacks. A year that stretched our patience with the virus, with the ever-evolving science, rules, and recommendations, and with each other. As most Americans celebrated the arrival of mass vaccinations at the start of the year, we were also confronted by what we maybe didn't know. We learned about breakthrough infections. The shots greatly slowed the pace of death and sickness, but had their limits. 
we got lessons in the Greek alphabet. Tonight, an explosive summer surge. The Delta variant is fueling the next wave of Omicron has become the most common coronavirus variant in the U.S. A memorable way to classify COVID's many variants and faces. This year, COVID became a proxy for distrust in our institutions. The notion that we were all in this together still rang true in at least a literal sense in 2021. But so did individual notions of what, if anything, should be required of all of us at times of great peril. COVID remains our common enemy. And now at year's end, joyous holiday reunions are shadowed by uncertainty. Omicron has alarmed us, but we are not helpless against it. Boosters offering what experts tell us is a strong line of defense from the variant. This is not 2020. Yes, we are tired, but maybe this is a moment to take a break from our weariness. To bang a pop or cheer from the windows like we did in those early days of the pandemic. For the healthcare workers and scientists were still engaged in the fight of their lives and the fight for our lives. That's nightly news for this Thursday. Please take care of yourself and each other. Good night. As the jury has reached an outcome, we're told, of the trial of Kim Potter, the former police officer facing manslaughter charges for the fatal shooting of 20-year-old Dante Wright. Potter said she mistook her firearm for her taser. Let's take you inside the courtroom now. We believe the jury is entering the room. Of course, we will not see them. All right, please be seated. Members of the jury, have you arrived at a verdict? negligence on or about April 11, 2021, 
in Hennepin County, state of Minnesota, find the defendant guilty. And that verdict was agreed to at 10.30 a.m. on 12-21-21. Members of the jury, is this your true and correct verdict? So say you one, and so say you all. Yes. Okay, you may be seated. All right, I am now going to poll the jury. Juror number two, is this your true and correct verdict? It is. Juror number six, is this your true and correct verdict? Yes, it is. Juror number seven, is this your true and correct verdict? Yes, it is. Juror number 13, is this your true and correct verdict? Oh, it's juror, uh, excuse me, juror uh, 11. And juror 17, is this your true and correct verdict? Yes. Juror number 19, is this your true and correct verdict? Yes. Juror number 21, is this your true and correct verdict? Yes. Juror number 22, is this your true and correct verdict? Yes. Juror number 26, is this your true and correct verdict? Yes. Juror number 40, is this your true and correct verdict? Yes. Juror number 48, is this your true and correct verdict? Yes. And juror number 55, is this your true and correct verdict? Yes, it is. Members of the jury, um, when you first came into the courtroom, I told you that jurors are the heroes of our judicial system. Well, the 12 of you are our heroes in this case. You might remember that there was a question on the questionnaire that asked whether you wanted to be on this jury. You were to check yes, no, or maybe. A number of you checked no or not sure, and a few of you checked all three. But when I asked each of you if you would be willing to serve if the party selected you as a juror, you all said yes. You said yes, even though we are in a pandemic with Omicron spreading in our community. You said yes, even though you had concerns about serving, given the nature of the case. You said yes, even though you knew you would be sequestered during deliberations and away from your loved ones. You were willing to sacrifice much because you believed in our justice system. And then you went into deliberations and each of you brought with you your common sense, individual perceptions and life experiences, and you came to an agreement on the verdicts. You did your duty. I'm so proud of you. You should be proud of yourselves. Without civic-minded citizens like you, our system of justice could not function. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your sacrifices. 
I wish you all a wonderful holiday season, and may the peace and beauty of the season be yours throughout the year. Uh, at this time, um, I'd like you to go into your uh, waiting courtroom, and I'll be in in just a moment. I'd like to thank you personally and to answer any questions that you have, okay? police officer Kimberly Potter showing her face to the jury, the jury of six men and six women delivering guilty verdicts on both counts, manslaughter in the first degree, manslaughter in the second degree for the fatal shooting of Dante Wright. Please be seated. Following a, uh, a traffic stop, um, the officer discharging her firearm, not her taser. Her defense calling it a mistake, a human mistake. The prosecution pushing forward a case that it was reckless. Her actions uh, were reckless. We want to go right now to NBC's Ron Allen, who is in Minneapolis. He's been following this trial closely for us. Uh, the jury certainly put in the work here. This obviously didn't come easily. 27 hours, Lester, over four days, and this is the verdict. And when it was read in the courtroom behind me, there's a small but determined band of protesters, demonstrators who've been here, and a huge cheer went up. Uh, it was a huge cheer that justice had been done for the Dante Wright's family. Uh, they have been out here day in and day out. It's been bitter cold. Uh, I can now hear some horns going in the streets. Um, there's going to be a celebration and a big sigh of relief, I can say, also for this community that has been through so much. Remember, this is the same courthouse, in fact, the same courtroom where the former police officer Derek Chauvin, who killed George Floyd, was convicted of murder not long ago. And of course, the Dante Wright incident happened while that case was winding down. So there's been a lot of pressure here. There's been a lot of concern about what this case might bring. But the bottom line is now uh, it's, it's brought justice for the family. And I can tell you, having talked to them and their attorneys over the weeks and months, that they're going to be uh, relieved. They, they will tell you probably that it's not full justice because they don't get their son back, but it's some measure of justice that they have been able to prevail in the criminal justice system here. And we all know how rare it is for a police officer to even be charged, let alone convicted, in a crime uh, involving the killing of a suspect. Um, this is quite a step forward, many will say, who are watching the criminal justice system in the context of this racial reckoning that the country has been going through. Uh, many will say that this is uh, a big step forward, or at least a step forward, uh, and one that I think a lot of people will honestly tell you they may not have expected. Remember, the defense argued in this case that Dante Wright was, uh, they had authorization, legal authorization to place him under arrest. There was a bench warrant outstanding for his arrest, and the defense argued that Potter even had the use had authorization to use deadly force um, in that situation. Uh, remember, this started as a as a case involving a young man who was pulled over because of an air freshener and because of expired license plate tabs. But then, once they ran a background check on him, they realized there was this outstanding warrant, and the entire situation changed. But the bottom line is. Uh, 
prosecutors argued that Kimberly Potter had 26 years of experience. She should have known better. She was trained in how to handle a firearm, how to handle a taser. She should have known the difference between the two weapons. She acted recklessly, they argued, as she approached the vehicle, as she took out her gun, yelled taser. The very fact of not looking at the weapon, not noticing that it was a firearm and not a taser, was reckless. And she shot him at point-blank range in the chest. Now, in terms of the sentencing here, the, the maximum sentence for this first-degree manslaughter charge is 15 years in prison. And with sentencing guidelines, it's about half that. However, during the trial, the prosecutors argue there were aggravating circumstances, aggravating factors, uh, and they are going to argue for a greater sentence in this case. Aggravating factors like injury caused to the other officers who were at the scene, injury caused to civilians who were at the scene. Remember, the car went down the road and crashed. All those aggravating factors, the prosecution is going to argue, should almost perhaps double the amount of time that Potter is in jail, they're going to argue. And you'll remember the same thing happened in the Derek Chauvin case, where he was sentenced in criminal court to 22 and a half years, and now in federal court just recently this past week to more than 20 more years. Uh, but that same dynamic is at play here, uh, and we'll see when the sentencing happens. But again, bottom line, she's guilty on both counts of manslaughter, and uh, the people who are supporting Wright's family are seizing are feeling a, a big sense of victory here. Lester? Ron Allen outside the courthouse for us. Thank you. We continue to monitor developments inside the courtroom itself. We understand you're discussing bail as to whether former officer Potter should be uh, remanded into immediate custody. As that plays out, let me also bring in Paul Butler. He's a former federal prosecutor and an NBC legal analyst. Uh, Paul, let me, let me begin about the difficulties of this case, what it represented. Um, in terms of the prosecution, was this a difficult case to prove? Every case against a police officer is a tough case for prosecutors, Lester, and this was especially difficult. Both the prosecution and the defense agreed that Officer Potter made a mistake, but the defense was a mistake is not a crime. The jury found that Miss Potter's mistake, which led to the death of an unarmed young man, that mistake was two crimes, manslaughter one and two. To convict Ms. Potter of manslaughter, the, the jurors did not have to find that she intended to kill Mr. Wright, but only that she was reckless or negligent. And they found beyond a reasonable doubt that she was both. All right, joining us now is former New York federal and state prosecutor Tally Farhadi and Weinstein. She's also an NBC News legal analyst. Tally, if I can bring you back to this question of sentencing, uh, Ron Allen suggesting prosecutors be looking for uh, to be uh, less lenient side. The, the, the fact that this really hinged on, uh, I guess, her intent and there was no intent to kill here, what does that say about how the sentencing may play out? ICE has always prided it. I think that it's unlikely that she will get the maximum sentence for either charge. Remember, she's looking at 15 years on the first degree manslaughter, 10 years on the second degree manslaughter. But as we heard earlier, the guidelines are generally to give about half of that, and which would amount to about two thirds of the ultimate sentence in prison. And I don't expect that the prosecution is going to succeed in going up against that upper limit. Uh, one of the major considerations in sentencing is also whether the defendant had a criminal history, and Ms. Potter did not. These are her first 
convictions. All right, Tally, thank you. We've been looking at uh, Kim Potter uh, in the courtroom. She showed uh, no visible emotion, uh, maintained her composure as the verdicts were, were being read. As we noted, uh, she was not wearing a mask uh, as the jury came in and delivered its verdict, um, perhaps uh, wanting them to, to see all of her uh, as this uh, momentous sentencing or a uh, uh, verdict came down in the courtroom. Let me go back to Ron Allen now as we continue to watch uh, the developments in the courtroom as to what happens now for her. Ron, um, there was so much video evidence in this case, her camera, the cameras of other officers, um, you know, very, very strong images that, and, and even her reaction to firing the shot. Um, how riveted was the jury to those, those videos? I, I think everyone was riveted to that, Lester, and this was video that had never been seen by the public before. We'd, we'd all seen that one or, one or two angles of the traffic stop from Potter's camera, but there were at least half a dozen or more officers' video, squad car, squad car video as well, that showed this... This, this whole sequence of events uh, as it unfolded from so many different angles. Um, there was really very powerful emotional testimony from not just Wright's mother, but also his girlfriend, who, remember, was the passenger in the car next to him. And she told the story of how, after the car went down the road ha and how it, it, it crashed into another vehicle, how she tried to save his life by pushing on his chest and, and how, during a period of about eight minutes or so, no one else was coming to help her try to do that. And this is part of the aggravating circumstances portion of the sentencing matter. The, 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 the prosecution is going to argue and has argued that because Potter didn't tell her fellow officers what had happened, there was chaos. And that the, the prosecution inferred that there might have been a chance to save Dante Wright's life had she communicated to her fellow officers that there had been a shooting, that there was a, 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 an unarmed man in the car, because the officers took that long to close in and to, to, to render aid once the car came to a stop down there. Um, so that was very emotional. And remember, these are people from this community, and they know what has been happening here for the past year or so. So I think they were profoundly affected by seeing all this video and hearing this very powerful testimony. Lester? All right, Ron, as you've been speaking, we've learned uh, apparently the judge ruling there will be no bail pending a, a, an appeal. She will be remanded immediately into custody following the two guilty verdicts, manslaughter first degree and second degree against former police officer Kim Potter. That concludes our coverage of the verdict. In the Kim Potter trial, we'll have more tonight when I see you on NBC Nightly News. For now, I'm Lester Holt, NBC News, Los Angeles. Good day. News legal analyst and Joseph Tully is a criminal defense attorney. Thank you both for joining us on this breaking news. Barbara, first to you. Kim Potter found guilty on both counts of manslaughter. And I remember what the prosecutor said Monday in closing arguments that that it was a colossal screw-up, a blunder of epic proportions that ended in the fatal shooting of Dante Wright. What's your reaction to the verdict? Yeah, you know, it's always surprising when a police officer is convicted of a crime because we see so rarely that they're held accountable. But I think in this case, it's a very just verdict. I think her testimony was an effort to garner some sympathy and a request essentially to nullify the verdict. But one thing that's really important here is that she was not charged with murder, which requires a finding of malice the way Derek Chauvin was. She was only charged with manslaughter. And that means that she was either reckless or negligent. And they found that she was reckless. Uh, and the testimony was that after 26 years in the force, 
she must know the difference between her taser and her gun. She made a mistake, but one that she's not allowed to, mis to make when she is a police officer and has this awesome responsibility. And so I think it's appropriate to see a jury hold her accountable here. And I, I think it does send a message to police officers that you have an important job to do and you need to take your training and responsibility seriously. Joseph, right now we're watching um, live footage here of Kim Potter being escorted out of the courtroom. Her attorneys both patting her on the shoulder. Uh, her hands are, are uh, behind her back in handcuffs. We know that there will be no bail. She'll be re remanded right away. We also know, Joseph, that deliberation was 27 hours, four days for this jury. And uh, we also know from Ron Allen's reporting in that special report that there was a uh, a cheer outside from some of the protesters, not, not a ton of visible reaction from inside the courtroom. What's your reaction to the verdict? I, I agree that this is a legally appropriate verdict. Uh, in, in looking at the law in Minnesota, in looking at the, the legal language specifically on recklessness, I can see how the jury got to their verdict. A uh, police officer having training is not allowed to claim that it's a mistake um, if he or she draws a, a gun and doesn't check it for a taser. So yes, it, it was a mistake. I don't think anyone can test that. But when you train other officers and when you've been trained, you're also trained to double check and make sure that what you have in your hand is what you want to be holding in your hand. And I think under that, under those facts and the legal definition of recklessness, the jury uh, made the appropriate decision here, and it took them a long time, but I, I do believe that it was legally appropriate. We want to get out now to NBC News correspondent Ron Allen, who is outside that courtroom. And Ron, I know during this special report you, you reported on, on the cheering uh, that was outside when the verdict was read. What's the situation like right now? Uh, we can still hear them, and perhaps you can see them in the background over there. There's a crowd of, oh, several dozen. It's not a huge crowd, but they have been here in some number throughout this entire court proceeding through the entire trial, and some of it in absolutely frigid weather, I can tell you. Um, and they are still over there chanting, justice for Dante, right? And and they're listening to the proceedings. Um, and I think what may have swung this in some ways, just listening to your previous analysis, is that the prosecution urge the jury to just use their common sense and look at the video and see what happened. And yes, the Minnesota law and manslaughter about recklessness and culpable negligence, which are the, 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 the standards of, of proof, if you will, or what these definitions, what these words mean, are a bit convoluted, if you will. Um, but the, ju the jury apparently did that, and they looked at the video, and ultimately the prosecution kept coming back to the fact that Dante Wright is dead, and that someone should be held accountable for that, and that even though this, these police officers had legal authorization, legal justification to arrest him, take him into custody, even though he did resist arrest to some extent, they, they don't have the right, as the, one of the prosecutors put it, to shoot him and kill him. They, there are much more, much more, there are legal ways to do that. And that's the, 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 that's the threshold that former officer Kim Potter crossed. Um, we're expecting to hear from uh, the state attorney general. Remember, this case was taken over by the state attorney general, Keith Ellison, from the local county prosecutors because it was that significant. Uh, we expect to hear perhaps from the defense, the attorneys. Uh, and we also expect to hear from Dante Wright's family and... Uh, 
and their attorneys. Uh, all of those parties have said that they will most likely respond after this is happening, and that's what we're waiting for now. And again, this crowd is still here. It's it's about the same size. Uh, the the atmosphere here now is not like it was back in April when this happened and when Derek Chauvin was on trial in this very same courthouse for murdering George Floyd. Uh, it's a much more calm and, frankly, I, I, the atmosphere of where people are feeling that they have been successful, that they have made progress, that there has been justice served now in these two very high-profile and, and ex extraordinary, to some extent, cases. Uh, so there are no barricades up. There's no heavy security here. One measure that was taken in Brooklyn Center, the town where this happened, is that they started the school vacation a week earlier for the holidays, just in case. So there are no, there's no school this week out there. Um, and there were some steps to evacuate the government center building here once a verdict was reached as a precaution. Uh, but again, the, the streets are very quiet. There's no signs of any sort of huge protest and certainly no negative protest because people here who support Wright's family certainly are very satisfied with what happened. Ron, do you expect that we'll hear from Wright's family? I expect very soon, yes. Uh, actually, we're, we anticipate that in any minute. Um, and it, it should come very soon. Uh, their attorney, uh, one of their lead attorneys, Ben Crump, who's been, of course, very visible in so many of these cases, uh, is here and will be with the family. He represents them along with other local attorneys here and, and others uh, as well. Uh, obviously, this case has a lot of national significance. Uh, it, it has been placed there along with cases involving Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and others who have died at the hands of police. Uh, and this is one, again, where justice went to the family. Um, and there was a feeling throughout this whole process that it could go either way. It is so rare for police officers to be arrested and charged in a case like this, let alone tried and convicted, uh, that most observers or many observers, and certainly the family and others here in this community, knew this was going to be difficult. But they, but they, I think just in talking to them over the weeks and months, they felt that the, the videotape and what you see was so egregious that a jury had to understand, had to sympathize, had to empathize with the family. And again, the prosecution kept coming back to the fact that Dante Wright is dead and someone should be held accountable for it. And that's, that was the essence of their case. Barbara, as we wait to hear from the family of Dante Wright, uh, what do you make here of the sentencing? We know that the first degree manslaughter charge could carry up to 15 years in jail as a sen in, in prison as sentencing. But what are some of the factors uh, that, that will be considered when, when figuring out exactly how much time she'll spend behind bars? 15 years is the statutory maximum that can be imposed for a conviction of this crime. But then a judge is supposed to look at the facts of the case as well as the facts about the offender. And so that's where sentencing guidelines come in. And you get points for this and points for that, plus points for aggravating factors, minus points for mitigating factors. And so as we heard Ron describe earlier, uh, there will be, the prosecutor has said it will seek some points aggra as aggravating facts for some of the harm uh, to bystanders and
to other officers. But I also suspect that the, the judge will find some mitigating points for someone who's been a 26-year police officer, her other conduct, uh, her absence of a criminal history. All of those things will offset some of those things. And so um, in the end, I, I think that somewhere around half of that uh, statutory max is, is about where we would expect to land. Uh, but of course, lawyers have their jobs to do here to try to persuade the judge uh, that they should be at either end of the possibilities. Joseph, this is a tough question to ask, but, you know, look, where we're looking right now at Christmas weekend, we know that the jury has been sequestered. They've been away from their families during deliberation. Could the timing of the fact that this is Christmas Eve Eve have played any role in the decision-making here of reaching a verdict? Oh, I, I definitely think so. Jurors are human beings, and um, they had been at, at – deliberations for days and days and working very hard. And if they didn't get it done today, uh, the court may not have been in session uh, tomorrow and it would have you know, dragged on um, into next week. Um, so I know that there was a lot of pressure uh, for them to come up with a conclusion and come up with a verdict today. Ron, if we still have you outside the courthouse, are you seeing um, more and more people show up now that it's been uh, about 26 minutes since we've heard the verdict? I know you said that uh, there, were, there was cheering uh, with the crowd when the verdict was read, cheering subsequently when we just talked to you a few moments ago. Are you noticing a building of the crowd? Honestly, not really, and, uh, but I think the crowd will gravitate to Wright's family when they come out of the courthouse. Uh, I believe they're going to make their comments with their attorneys somewhere in a nice, warmer place. Um, but there are, the word is spreading, um, and I'm not sure what's going on out in Brooklyn Center. Remember, this case happened, this incident happened about, oh, 20 minutes' drive from here in a suburb of Minneapolis. The, the, the case was tried in the courtroom here in Minneapolis, uh, and there may be more reaction out there. Uh, that is where all of the protests, so many of the protests happened uh, back when this case happened back in, in April. Uh, but at this moment, again, it, it is a holiday period. The, the city has been very quiet, and, and again, there is not the, there wasn't the tension and the anxiety uh, during this trial that existed many months ago because, again, I think for many advocates and activists will tell you that they've, they've been feeling some sense of accomplishment, that they've been moving forward on their demand for, for racial justice. And so that has eased some of the tension here, not completely, but it, is, it has helped. And, and certainly this outcome, these guilty verdicts, will contribute to that in a positive way. Uh, but at this moment, um, I think people are waiting to hear from the family. They're waiting to hear from um, Dante Wright's mother and father and their attorneys and, um, and see what they have to say. Lindsay? Everybody, we are approaching the top of the hour. Just want to catch everybody up to speed on what we are discussing as we wait to hear from the family of Dante Wright. Kim Potter, the former Brooklyn Center police officer, has been found guilty on first and second degree manslaughter charges in the death of Dante Wright. Uh, he was stopped during a traffic stop in Brooklyn Center uh, for uh, ex expired registered tags. Uh, officers found that he had uh, an outstanding warrant. The situation escalated and Kim Potter uh, claims that she grabbed her gun when she meant to grab her taser. And we all remember that video where she said taser, taser, taser. Uh, but she has been found guilty on first and second degree manslaughter. And uh, defense attorney Joseph Tully, I, I want to go back to you. Knowing what we know now, uh, was it a mistake for Kim Potter to testify on her own behalf? I don't believe.
believe so. Uh, e- even with the benefit of hindsight, I think that even if it didn't help her in, in the guilt phase, uh, it may help significantly in the penalty phase. The judge was right there. She saw genuine remorse. Um, she saw that the officer, former Officer Potter sort of face head on the accusations by taking the stand. And I think that this is something um, – it, it was something that it – w- it was a shot in the dark. It was something that, that – could have helped that the prosecutor that the defense knew would be helpful because she's a good witness to put on the stand. She's articulate. She was remorseful. Um, so I don't think it was a mistake and it may be helpful for sentencing. Barbara McQuaid, when we talk about the significance of this case, Ron Allen did, uh, essentially group this case in with some other very high profile ones that we have heard, of course, George Floyd, um, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. And when we look at those cases collectively through the lens of this one as well, what is the significance of today's verdict? I think today's case is a very significant contribution uh, to cases of of racial justice. The Derek Chauvin case, in some ways, was the easier case because he acted with malice, and I think everyone could very easily say that is just simply unacceptable behavior. Here it's a little different. We have Kim Potter saying, and I think quite credibly, that she made a mistake. Uh, She didn't intend to kill anybody. She just kind of lost her cool and pulled the trigger, used a gun when she meant to use a taser. But we hear that so often when police officers say, I made an honest mistake, I felt fear for my life, I was afraid of him. Um, And sometimes implicit biases are creeping into those assessments of the amount of danger that the police officer faced. And so often, as long as they say, I felt like my life was in danger, end of story, uh, no accountability. And so I think what this case says is you can't be reckless and you can't be negligent when you are assessing the danger of the situation or when you're deciding how to respond. So I think in that way, this is a very significant milestone in the quest for racial justice. Also some parallels here. One of the prosecutors for the state, Erin Eldridge, she was also involved in the prosecution of Derek Chauvin. And uh, Potter's defense attorney, Earl Gray, also the attorney for Thomas Lane, who we know is one of the officers charged in George Floyd's death. Uh, Ron Allen, if we still have uh, NBC correspondent Ron Allen outside the courthouse, I want to ask you, the the makeup of the jury here, six men, six women, nine of whom are white, two Asian, one black, but Hennepin County itself is 68, only 68% white. Have you heard any complaints from the side of the defense or Wright's family about the makeup of that jury? You know, that's an interesting question, and it really didn't come up during the process of jury selection or during the trial. Uh, I guess it was seen as what it is, and, you know, that's very much in contrast to the composition of the jury in the case of the men who were convicted of killing Watt Arbery in Georgia last month, where there was a lot of concern because there was only one African-American juror, and the judge had even said that he... He saw discrimination in the selection process by the defense attorneys using their preemptory challenges to strike black jurors, but there essentially was nothing he could do about it. But that here, here, that was not really an issue. And I, at times, I wondered, uh, but I think people just felt like this is what it is. So that's let's go for go forward. Uh, there were two Asian American women and one African American woman on the jury, along with the. The, uh, the nine white jurors, and here's the outcome that we got, so there's that. Um, I can also read you a statement from Dante Wright's family that we just got. 
that says the family from the attorneys, the family of Dante Wright is relieved that the justice system has provided some measure of accountability for the senseless death of their son, brother, father, and friend. From the unnecessary and overreaching traffic stop to the shooting that took his life, that day will remain a traumatic one for this family and yet another example for America of why we desperately need change in policing, training, and protocols. Um, we understand now that we're going to hear from Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison in about 10 minutes or so, 15 minutes or so. So that is what we expect next, and then the family and perhaps the defense as well. Lindsay? Ron, thank you. Um, and we do know that that sentencing will be for Friday, February 18th. Um, Barbara McQuaid, want to ask you, uh, this is something that the prosecution said in their closing arguments. This was a colossal screw-up, a blunder of epic proportions. It was precisely the thing she had been warned about for years, and she was trained to prevent it. It was irreversible, and it was fatal. But hearing that statement from Wright's family, how much culpability should be placed on the Brooklyn Center Police Department? From what we know from the testimony of their policies and procedures, we know that the police chief resigned one day after she resigned. How much blame should be placed on the department itself? Well, I think that would require some investigation into the quality of their training. Uh, there are, uh, you know, investigations known as pattern or practice investigations, which look at departments to determine whether they are engaging in constitutional policing. If their policies come up short, if their training comes up short, um, then perhaps there is some accountability that needs to be held uh, against the police department itself. But what this verdict says is that it may be that the training is perfectly adequate and Kim Potter ignored her training. Recklessness means I was aware of a risk and I did the thing that caused death anyway. And so in this instance, I think it would mean uh, that she should check twice about what weapon was in her hand. Tasers are designed to look and feel different from guns. They're yellow instead of black. They're heavier. The grip feels different. And so despite all different those sides. They're one on different sides, exactly. And so all of those things are done by police departments and by industry standards to try to avoid this kind of thing. And so officers you know, are trained to think twice, to look twice, to double check before you use a taser and make sure you've got the weapon you think you have. Her failure to do that is what was reckless here. So it may very well be that these standards are fine, but I think no doubt across the country we need to re-examine our use of force policies, the way people are trained, and also training in implicit bias so that people can recognize the bias that we all have and do the best we can to manage them. Joseph, before I go back to you, real quick to Barbara, we did talk about the factors that will be uh, looked at when deciding how much time Kim Potter will serve. But 15 years for first-degree manslaughter, 10 years for second-degree, those are the statutory maximums. Are those typically served concurrently? In a case like this, those two convictions will merge because they are all based on the same uh, facts. So oftentimes, prosecutors will charge like this in the alternative, charging first the higher recklessness, the manslaughter one, and then saying to the jury, even if you find it was not reckless, you should at least find that it was negligent, which is a slightly lower level of culpability. And that's instead of saying she did know there was a risk and ignored it, it is she should have known there was a risk and she ignored it. That's the 10-year penalty. So because she was convicted of the higher offense, that negligent homicide, the, the manslaughter count, will simply merge and go away. So the total she can face is the highest of 15 years.
And Joseph, uh, from a defense attorney perspective, we talked about whether the fact that Kim Potter testified on her own behalf and became very emotional was damaging or not. You said you didn't think it was, um, even in hindsight. But that video, that body cam, cam video that we all remember so clearly in which she did say, taser, 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 uh, and then at one point when she was told that she had shot him, uh, she said, I'm going to prison. How damaging was that video to her case? Uh, the That part of it, I think, was damaging um, just for the fact that she had shot somebody, and I think it was a human reaction. She was panicking, but she w was saying, um, I'm going to go to prison. She wasn't saying, oh, my God, is he okay? Call an ambulance. You know, get the paramedics ready. Let's try to save him. I shot him. Um, again, nobody's saying that she should have had a cool head, but I think the jury hearing her and hearing her focused on herself when um, she, if she was in her training mode, she would have been focused on, there's a gunshot victim, I need to get him help. Ron Allen, want to go back to you outside the courthouse, if you can sort of paint a picture of what is going on around you and what you're seeing um, now that uh, some 40 minutes have elapsed since we first learned uh, both of the guilty verdicts. Well, we're still waiting to hear some reaction. And on that last point, I think uh, the, a lot of the analysis of Kim Potter's testimony was that she appeared to be a very sympathetic witness in many ways. She appeared to be very, very human. She's a mother. She has uh, two sons. Uh, one, I believe, is in the Marine Corps. And she talked about how they were coming home for Christmas. And, and interestingly, during her 26 years as a police officer, she had never fired her gun nor her taser. And uh, for, for some reason, she did in this instance and she never really explained why this happened you know we, we've often heard how she says that she mistook her taser for her gun for her taser but she never really explained what happened she i don't remember i don't remember on the witness stand when when you get to the point of of uh, after the gun goes off and that's may have been part of the problem with the defense is that she didn't give a, a real cogent explanation to what happened that you know and, and it just seems so obvious that you know your taser is over here and you go for it that way and you're it, it's and I think that um, that may have been a, a problem uh, in the in the defense um, and the defense also argued that that you know she was she wasn't aware of what she was doing that this was unconscious and therefore she couldn't consciously have fired her gun or acted recklessly because she thought she was firing her taser which was another sort of um, psychological analysis uh, defense analysis that that didn't obviously didn't persuade the jury and another thing the defense said was that uh, th that in this situation the police were authorized to use deadly force because the officers around the car were at risk and apparently the jury did not believe that either um, so there were a number of arguments that the defense made to try and defend her that didn't work and on a previous point about police training and, and policies and so forth out in Brooklyn Center, remember the police chief came out the next day and said that he saw nothing wrong with what had happened. He testified in court to the same uh, same effect. He said the, the policies and procedures were followed and this was a this is what happens. And, and he was very supportive of Kim Potter uh, on the witness stand and in the days afterwards. And since out in Brooklyn Center, there has been a big effort by the city council to revamp the police department one thing that they have created is a 
a, a level of public safety, a Department of Public Safety, where traffic stops like this that, 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 that don't involve um, weapons and so forth that seem to be routine are going to be done by individuals who are unarmed citizens. Um, the details of all that are still being worked out. And of course, this is something that's been discussed around the country. Also, the idea of sending mental health professionals out to police stops that involve situations where there's a mental health problem. In other words, this, this case and so many others have made police look at their what they do. And one thing that a lot of police departments have said is that we're asked to do too much, that, you know, we're, we're asked to do all kinds of things. And so in Brooklyn Center, they are, again, a relatively small community of, a, of, of, of I think there were about 50 or 60 police officers, all told. Um, they're trying to make reforms. And a lot of that, a lot of that has been driven by the city council and, and the mayor in the days since the Dante Wright killing. Um, here in Minnesota and Minneapolis as well, there were efforts to to change the police department. Remember the defund the police movement after the George Floyd killing. Uh, that happened, that echoed around the country. Not a lot has happened on that front in terms of defunding the police, but there have been reforms that a lot of departments are undertaking. And again, it is it is aimed at, for the most part, trying to trying to uh, de-escalate and, and, and give police ways, training, so that these situations don't become deadly. Remember, in court, Kim Potter even testified that this was a training mission. She was out with a, a rookie cop um, who, that day, and she said that the, the rookie cop is the one who decided to pull Dante right over, and that in this situation, she would not have even pulled him over. Sunday afternoon, expired license plate tabs, uh, a, a air freshener hanging from a mirror. You know, COVID, people can't get to the DMV to do things. So she said that she would have let that go. And that's something that the police, that's something that, the Dante, that Dante Wright's family had been arguing as well, is that this was a traffic stop that never should have happened. This, they said, was a case of racial profiling, um, where police pull over young people of color, and then, and then once they have them, then they do the records check and they find other things, and, and then the then essentially it's an arrest for something that had nothing to do with a busted taillight or something like that. Um, so th this case is, has done a lot to make police around the country ask questions of themselves, and that is something that is continuing to be pushed, um, not just locally, but nationally as well. Certainly, and you mentioned the defund the police movement and communities rethinking their police departments. Right where you are, Minneapolis, uh, in Minneapolis, Ron, you know very well, just in November, voters rejected the idea of replacing their police department with a Department of Public Safety. But as we await to hear from the family of Dante Wright and uh, Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison, let's go ahead and listen again to that verdict uh, being read. Uh, Ms. Potter, please rise. I'm now going to read your verdicts as it will as it will appear in the permanent court records of Hennepin County. In the matter of State of Minnesota versus Kimberly Potter, court file number 27CR217490, we the jury on the charge of manslaughter in the first degree while committing a misdemeanor on or about April 11, 2021, in Hennepin County, State of Minnesota, find the defendant guilty. And the verdict was agreed to at the hour of 11.40 a.m. and signed by the jury person. 
on 12-23-21. The verdict on count two is we, the jury, on the charge of manslaughter in the second degree, culpable negligence on or about April 11, 2021, in Hennepin County, state of Minnesota, find the defendant guilty. And that verdict was agreed to at 10.30 a.m. on 12-21-21. Members of the jury, is this your true and correct verdict? So say you one, and so say you all. Yes. Barbara McQuaid, what essentially is the jury saying by saying she's guilty of first and second degree manslaughter in this case? Well, first-degree manslaughter under Minnesota law um, says that you're guilty of a crime if you in, inadvertently cause a death while recklessly handling a firearm. And so that's what they're finding here, that she did cause this death, that she didn't intend to kill anybody, but that she was reckless in the way she handled the firearm. And as we've discussed, uh, when she genuinely thought that she was using her taser, uh, but instead was using her gun and fired it, that was reckless. She knew there was a risk of that. She'd been through training. She was a training officer. These weapons are designed to look different. And when she failed to take that second look to double check that she had the right weapon, the jury said she was reckless in doing that. The negligent uh, standard, which was the second count, the count for second-degree manslaughter, says something quite similar, and that is if there is a death that occurs because of the negligence of the defendant, that is uh, second-degree manslaughter. And so certainly if they could prove that higher level of recklessness, they could also prove that lower level of negligent, which just means maybe she didn't know she was supposed to do this, but she sure should have known that you were supposed to do this. Uh, but of course, because they found the higher of the two, the first-degree manslaughter, that second one essentially merges with the prior conviction, it goes away, and she will be sentenced to the highest offense here, which is the manslaughter two, which carries the 15-year uh, potential criminal penalty. Before I ask Ron what we can expect to hear from uh, AG Keith Ellison and the family, Joseph Tully, I want to ask you, the defense had argued that it was Wright and not Potter who, who led to this fatal interaction, uh, essentially saying that once Wright tried to flee, the police had no choice but to stop him. Um, but, but it sounds like the jury disagreed there, Joseph. Correct, yes. That was mainly a defense to the, uh, to the manslaughter in the second degree charge in terms of negligence, a superseding cause can break the chain of negligence. So in other words, if person A is negligent, but yet person B uh, does something that intervenes and it causes person A to carry out their negligence, um, then person A uh, wouldn't be guilty. But um, here the jury said, look, she was getting a taser out to somebody who was in a car. The car was running still with keys in it and even had she been accurate and had her taser, um, she would have tased him and he could have driven out and, and had a head-on collision with someone else. So under any way you look at it, it was a very reckless decision and it was a negligent decision because even despite her training, she didn't take the time to double check what was in her hand. Ron Allen, as we wait to hear from the parents of Dante Wright, um, what do we know about uh, Keith Ellison's involvement in this case um, and what we might hear from him as well as the parents? 
Remember, Ellison's a former member of a former member of Congress, and he became the Attorney General of this state. And he uh, he styles himself a reformer, a progressive, someone who is trying to make the criminal justice system work better for more citizens. And I suspect that he's going to say this is an example of that, uh, because that's certainly what um, Wright's family and uh, the attorneys that represent them are saying in statements that we're hearing and that we've been hearing through, throughout this whole, whole, during the course of the investigation and the trial. Uh, so that's what we would expect. Um, we're not quite sure what the holdup is. Um, the the uh, Attorney General is probably going to speak first. Uh, I don't know that we're going to hear from the defense, uh, probably not, given the outcome of all this. Um, and again, we're also waiting to hear from Dante Wright's family. Um, and they are going to talk about, I think, again, based on statements that they've been making about how this is some measure of accountability, um, because obviously it's not bringing their son back, which is what you hear from all, so many families, all these families who have been impacted in this sort of horrific way, that uh, no matter what happens in a courtroom, their lost, lost loved one is not coming back, and that's, that's the real tragedy of all this. Um, that, and again, that's what the jury... That's what the prosecution tried to focus the jury on, you know, the, the humanity of all this. Um, there was, I was really struck during the trial about the, just the emotional testimony from Dante Wright's mother, girlfriend who was in the car with him, his father. Testimony that at times the defense objected to because they thought it was just inflaming the, the, ju the jury and prejudicial. Um, but it, it, it happened. And, and now... Um, now we're going to go to sentencing, and the prosecution is going to try to push for these aggravated factors that will strengthen or lengthen the sentence that Potter faces. Um, and I think at the end of the day, to see a police officer handcuffed in court and walked out to prison is just a, something you just don't see happen a lot. But it's happening more these days, apparently. And... Um, it's, it perhaps sends a message, uh, and I suspect that's something else that uh, Attorney General Ellison may say, that uh, hopefully this does send a message to law enforcement that you will be held accountable. Um, and obviously this tension between some communities and police is going to continue for some time, but, but we've now had a couple of cases, the George Floyd case, this case, uh, the Dante Wright case, that have changed the dynamic somewhat, um, perhaps. Um, and I guess, obviously, that remains to be seen to what extent this really does make a difference or whether this is uh, an extraordinary sort of set of circumstances that that is not going to be the norm or the mean going forward. Hearing a lot of cheering there behind you, Ron. Uh, Ron, Joseph, and Barbara, we're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. If you've got a pack of hot dogs in the kitchen, toss them in the trash. Do this instead. See, breakfast literally means breakfast. It's the first food activating the digestive system after the overnight hours when nothing was eaten for a while. So it actually doesn't matter when you eat. You can even break your fast at noon or 2 p.m. It's really what you eat that is important. Because the first thing you eat will affect the response of two major things, hunger hormones and gut bacteria. So the right or wrong food will set the stage for cravings, energy levels, and even your mood for the rest of the day. So the first thing a person eats every day, no matter what time of the day that is, is incredibly important to get right. Most people really have no idea what a big difference their gut health 
and the right food can have on the quality of daily life. If you want better energy, focus, weight, skin, and digestion, it all starts with healthy gut bacteria. My name is Dr. Amy Lee. I'm the founder and director of the Integrative Wellness Center in Los Angeles. And in this presentation, I'm going to expose three harmful foods that are likely in your cupboards right now that could be putting a dagger through your weight loss goals. These are foods that are banned in never stops. So let's get into it. What's happening right now, what it all means for you for an hour every day. It can be hard to keep up, so let's get started together. Allie Jackson now, weekdays at 5 on NBC News Now. News is happening now. A look at what's making headlines. At the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, who worked on this case, the staff of the Hennepin County Attorney's Office and Washington County Attorney's Office. Specifically, I want to thank Mr. Drew Evans, and those who testified in this case, like Agent Phil, who did a fine job and who put in many long hours, we appreciate their service. The next step in this case is sentencing. And all I will say about that today is that we have to look forward to the court setting a calendar date for that hearing. And at that time, we will make our appropriate arguments within the context of the court hearing. I think we have a date, do we not? What is that one? Anybody remember the date? March 8th. My thoughts are also uh, with Ms. Potter today. She has gone from being an esteemed member of the community and an honored member of a noble profession to being convicted of a serious crime. I don't wish that on anyone. But it would be our but it was our responsibility as the prosecution, as ministers of justice, to pursue justice wherever it led and the jury found the facts. My thoughts are also with those who work in law enforcement and public safety. We hold you in high regard, and we also hold you to high standards. We don't want you to be discouraged. Your community respects and appreciates you. We want you to uphold the highest ideals of our society and ideals of safety. And when a member of your profession is held accountable, it does not diminish you. In fact, it shows. It shows the whole world that those of you who enforce the law are also willing to live by it. And that's a good thing. It restores trust, faith, and hope. Well, in the words of Daniel Sered, Daniel Sered is a noted author on who writes on justice issues. Justice exists when all parties exercise their power in a way that is consistent with the humanity of everyone involved and in the interests of the greater good. The humanity of everyone involved includes the humanity of community members and includes the humanity of police officers. And when that standard of justice is not upheld, it must be the job of a prosecutor to step up and then step in and attempt to uphold it and uphold the principle that no one is above the law and no one is beneath the law. Finally, my thoughts are with community of Brooklyn Center residents, elected officials, and police officers, and all communities that hunger for a better relations between police and community, and for everyone to get home safe at the end of the day. I hope this, today's verdict provides a measure of healing for all of them. I thank you, and we can take a question or two. Joseph, this is Greg on the 27th hour. What was going through your mind prosecution? That the jury was taking this seriously, that they were going through every bit of evidence that they were not 
um, leaving anything to the side and that they understood that this matter was of tremendous importance to the Wright family, but also to the Potter family, to the entire community. So I thank them for their service. Um, let's get storms. They, they want questions for the for the Wright family. Is that okay? Or okay, sure. Oh my gosh. Um, the moment that we heard guilty on the um, manslaughter one, emotions, every single emotion that you could imagine just running through your body at that moment. Um, I kind of let out a yelp because it was built up in the anticipation of what was to come when, while we were waiting for the last few days. And um, now we've been able to process it. Um, we want to thank the entire prosecution team. We want to thank community support, um, everybody who's been out there that has supported us in this this long fight for accountability. What did you think of uh, Ms. Potter when she was on the stand last week? Um, I'd rather not answer that question. <clears throat> well, the truth be told, what do I think? Uh, I want to thank her. I'm going to keep it short. <laughs> Mr. Elson, did you expect Officer Potter, former Officer Potter, to take the stand? And do you think that helped or hurt your case? They said from the very beginning that she was going to testify. They said in jury selection. And she had, she, she expressed herself immediately after this tragic incident on the scene. So I'm not too surprised. Look, it's a lot. It, it, I'm. I think it's a good sign that she 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 was remorseful. I mean, who? What decent person wouldn't be brokenhearted and sad if they were involved in something like this? So I, for the best for her, I don't. I wish nothing but the best for her and her family. Um. But the truth is. She will be able to correspond with them and visit with them no matter what happens. But the rights won't be able to talk to Dante. With two high-profile guilty verdicts this year of police, what do you think that says, sends a message about police accountability? I think that juries admire police. They respect them. And they want to make sure that high ideals and standards are maintained. to the officers on the scene? Oh, yeah, so I understand what you mean. We did call them. Well, um, we, we, we had confidence in the law and the facts, and we were very confident that uh, Seth Stoughton was going to give clear testimony, and he did. So I think that's pretty much what we have time for now. Yeah. Really quick, what kind of sentence do you think um, you'll be calling for here? A fair one. Sorry, I can't be more specific. But the, but the main thing about sentencing is that the Wright family is going to be able to make a victim impact statement. And the most important thing may be 
that really for the first time they're going to be able to talk about how this tragic incident impacted them in their lives. Thanks for coming. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, everybody, that was Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison with the parents uh, of Dante Wright there. As we continue to watch, we can see the mother of Dante Wright embracing Keith Ellison there. Um, a, a brief press conference, uh, but I do want to bring back, I believe I still have um, my, my panelists here, Ron Allen, NBC News correspondent outside the courthouse, Barbara McQuaid, uh, former U.S. attorney and also uh, defense attorney uh, Joseph Tully, um, Ron, just want to uh, go to you first for, we, we didn't exactly know what Keith would say. What stuck out to you the most? Looks like instead of Ron Allen, we have Shaquille Brewster. Shaq, what stuck out to you as part of that press conference? Lindsay, Fulkin, I just heard the very end of that press conference. I didn't get much of it. We've been talking to some of the people here in front of the courthouse, but I'll tell you the mood outside of the courthouse, at least, is one of celebration, and that's something that people are acknowledging. There was a band playing a little bit ago. You may hear music in the background, and people said that they were surprised by that verdict that eventually came, and the verdict uh, not just for the first count of manslaughter, but that second count of manslaughter. The source of that surprise, you talk to so many folks, and they say it's because of how long those deliberations went on for lasting more than 27 hours over the course of four days for a case that the facts were not really in dispute but it was the interpretation of the law that was always in dispute and you see kind of the environment here around you still have a pe people kind of lingering about there's a lot of hugs that you see people holding up guilty signs there's chance every once in a while we do expect to hear from the family of Dante Wright and their attorneys to come up in a little bit of time but it's one uh, People saying that they got the justice they deserve, but also acknowledging that in no in no way does this bring back 20-year-old Dante Wright, but it does surprise them to hear what they heard in that courtroom earlier today. And, and Shaq, what are you hearing from people in addition to maybe the cheering and the celebratory atmosphere? Um, you've been chatting with folks. What are they telling you? You know, one big thing that you hear is that there was a difference. You know, a lot of people connect this to the Chauvin verdict. We were standing right here in this park uh, in April when it was a week after Dante Wright was killed. And uh, it was happening as the Chauvin trial was, ha was going on. And that jury took about nine hours to deliberate. And what you heard then was a lot of relief. People not expecting that result. You heard the same thing here, where people said that they were surprised that the jury ultimately decided that. But the key difference that you hear uh, with this case is that this was not one where everyone was watching every single moment of it. I had one person tell me that they, you know, would check in on the headlines at the end of the day. They would check to see what was said in court, but they weren't watching the testimony in full. They just had other things going on and they frankly didn't expect the result that they got but you continue to hear people say that they were surprised by that result and that's what you're seeing some relief some celebration of, of that and this is something that now um, they're they they know and you have many of them saying that this sends a signal they're hoping that this sends a signal to law enforcement um, for something in the future and you continue to hear those calls that it's not just about one case it's not just about Dante Wright you heard this with the Chauvin case it's not just about George Floyd but there's the call calls for systemic reform and systemic changes to policing. And that's the push that people here are saying, yes, they'll celebrate today. They feel good about what they heard in that courtroom, but they eventually want something to stop and prevent uh, other 20-year-old black men from getting killed. 
Joseph Tully, um, Keith Ellison was asked whether Potter's testimony helped or, or hurt the prosecution's case, and, and Keith Ellison said uh, he wasn't surprised to hear from her because she had, again, spoken right after the incident in which she said, I'm going to jail. Um, but he said it was good that she was remorseful. Uh, what, what did you make of his comments, also uh, him saying he, he essentially wished her the best? Uh, I thought his his comments were actually very uh, good, very on point, and I, I tend to be, you know, I have to be a very, uh, have my feelers open to be critical of prosecutors because, you know, they can step over the line just like anybody else, but his comments were, I think, dead on. Um, I think his comment about her, him saying uh, that, look, we heard her testify basically in the video. Everybody saw the video, so um, which that's a point of since the video was there, maybe her testimony in court was redundant or wasn't needed. But he was basically saying, look, we, we have the jury verdict. Um, it doesn't matter if she testified or didn't testify. There was a video, and the verdict is what matters here. And nothing else everything else is just really uh, footnotes at this point um, in, in terms of the verdict i want to bring in right now carmen best an nbc news law enforcement analyst and retired seattle police chief um chief best uh, one thing that, that attorney general keith ellison said at that press conference is juries admire police they just want to make sure um that high ideals and standards are maintained what did you make of that comment well, I think that, um, you know, the comments were made were very uh, appropriate for what we were seeing and what was happening uh, there uh, at the time at the court. And I think that um, many people will be relieved uh, with the outcome and that they're comments for what we were looking at. We have spoken um, with our panelists uh, over the last hour or so, um, if you can still hear me, Chief Best, um, uh, talking about this case uh, through the lens of other cases involving police brutality that we've seen, of course, Derek Chauvin's trial. Um, there have been uh, so many. This, this taking place almost in the wake of that verdict being reached. Where do you think this case stands out in, in the quest for social justice and reform? Well, every time uh, people see, uh, you know, African-American man or person killed by police officers, it's going to bring up a certain level of emotion uh, and a lot of uh, questions about what has happened. In this particular case, I think it's very clear that, um, that the officer, you know, made mistakes. But you have to be accountable for your mistakes. That's why we have training. That's why you have policies. Her mistakes in the view of many, including many law enforcement officers, were really inexplicable. No one could figure out how, you know, how it came to, to be that this young man died here. And so um, it's not an indictment on um, officers or, or training. It just says that, you know, when mistakes are made, you know, officers have to be accountable for their actions. So you say it's not an indictment on training. From what we've learned about the policies and procedures of the Brooklyn Center Police Department and from, for example, the, the former police chief's testimony that he saw nothing wrong with what Potter did, do you feel like there needs to be any reforms within that department? Well, clearly they're going to review everything that led up to this, including their training, uh, including um, how often, uh, how they train when they're talking about taser training, uh, what that means, when it's appropriate to use deadly force. You know, I don't stand here to, you know, critique and say that she did this intentionally. I think that's clear to everyone, but the, the appropriate charge was 
filed and the outcome that came out was a just outcome. You know, officers do the training. We learn, you know, mistakes can be made, but when people's lives are at risk, uh, then you have to be accountable for your actions. And really, uh, I've talked to many people, many officers who carry a taser. I've picked up the taser myself. I've compared it to a handgun. It's really inexplicable. Chief Best, I, I just, I'm so sorry I have to interrupt you. It looks like the mother of Dante Wright and her attorney are speaking right now. Let's okay. listen in. And as we think about that as a community, let's reflect on how other people of color in Minnesota and across the country have been sentenced yep. before. Yep. Yeah. That's right. Now, we also have to turn our eye towards the system that made Kim Potter. Brooklyn Center, why does your officer not know the difference between a sidearm and a chain? speaking outside the courthouse. Want to go out to Shaquille Brewster. Um, and Shaq, one of the, the, the things that Katie had said when she was speaking with Attorney General Keith Ellison was she was asked about the emotion that she felt uh, at the moment the verdict was read. And she said, every emotion you can imagine was coursing through her body. She even let out a yelp. Um, right now, what do we know about the family? Of course, you've been in touch with people who who are connected with Wright and what they might be going through right now. 
Well, you just see, you see it there in the motion that you hear from Katie Bryant. Katie Bryant was actually the first witness in this case. She took the stand and talked about uh, the life of Dante Wright, but she was also a fact witness in this case. She was on the phone moments before he was shot and killed by Kim Potter. And it was, she was in the court almost every single day of this trial. She is someone who got emotional in court many times, especially when I remember reading the notes of when Kim Potter took the stand and Kim Potter was taking the stand and it was emotional on one side of the court and then you had Dante Wright's mother Katie Bryant also emotional on the other side hearing the other aspect of it and then you have Dante Wright's father Arbery he was the final witness from the prosecution um, who you heard take the stand so this is a family that has been extremely involved throughout the trial we saw them get emotional we would hear and see them come to the front of the courthouse every single day walk in walk out they were paying attention closely and this is something that took a toll this is a son that will not be here uh, for Christmas as we head into this break. That was actually how the prosecution framed their closing argument, saying that Dante Wright will not be at the Christmas dinner table on Saturday, and that was part of their pitch to the jurors to get this guilty verdict. So I think you definitely had a lot of motion, and it was apparent from the beginning of this trial all the way through to now, where you're listening to Katie Bryant um, almost celebrate the guilty verdicts that they received today. Barbara McQuaid, um, the uh, the attorney who was with Katie Bryan just now on the steps, said uh, questions that now will come up. Brooklyn Center, why does your officer not know the difference between a taser and a gun? Why does your officer, when she is on the stand, say she doesn't remember um, what kind of taser or certain actions done that day? Who ultimately will answer those questions? Whose job is it to investigate on a larger scale? Well, one entity that can do that investigation is the Department of Justice. They routinely look into what's called pattern of practice investigations to determine whether this was a one-off, uh, an incident by one particular officer, or there is an institutional failure at that police department uh, as to whether they are appropriately training their officers on a widespread basis. And so I think... Um, Internally, they will at least take a look at this. Um, but I also think that we've heard a little bit of discussion today about perhaps the bigger issue that not only this department, but all departments across the country ought to really be thinking about. And that is, on what basis do you pull over vehicles to stop them? Because whenever you stop someone, you are automatically creating a risk not only for the driver, but also for the police officer. And in certain instances, we want police officers to do that because we want to make sure people are protected. But for something like an air freshener or a broken taillight, you know, maybe the better course and the better use of our law enforcement resources is to get the license plate number and send a notice that you need to repair that taillight or remove that air freshener rather than having a police stop, which so often turns deadly. And so what I'd really like to see is a reassessment by police departments all across the country as to under what conditions their officers ought to be pulling over motorists. Carmen Best, what do you have to say to, to those comments from Barbara McQuaid? I agree with Barbara wholeheartedly that, uh, and I think that already a number of agencies are already looking at, you know, traffic stops, when to make them, when it's appropriate, you know, what things they should be stopping people for, and what things they can just send a citation. And I know a lot of agencies have reviewed those policies. And in fact, I would just caution people while we recognize that, uh, in the case of Kim Potter, I mean, she has to be responsible for her own individual actions. I, I'd be a little bit hesitant to jump in front and 
say that um, there's a systemic uh, lack of training in the department. That may be the case, but we just don't know that yet. Um, most agencies that I know of do a fair amount of training to make sure that people uh, clearly uh, know the difference between a handgun and a taser. And anyone like myself who's actually held both of them and moved them knows that they feel very different. And so, uh, again, I'm not uh, criticizing the department's training. We don't know yet. But certainly the, the officer or the former officer needs to be responsible for her actions in this case. Joseph Tully, in hindsight, looking uh, holistically at the case and now knowing the result, were there major missteps on the part of the defense or was this just uh, that egregious of a case that we have two guilty verdicts? If anything, in looking at how the defense conducted itself, I think that you cannot defend a an officer in 2021 the same way that you could in, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I used to uh, look at the headlines myself. Um, again, it, it was rare for an officer to be charged uh, with a crime. And um, I would see that, you know, even when they were charged, the jury would acquit. And I would just think, you know, just walking into court and saying, look, they're an officer of the law. You respect them. You know they were doing the right thing, and the jury would have quit um, years ago. But now with the advent of the cameras everywhere on cell phones and people being able to see police behavior, police brutality in the street, um, you cannot try a case the same way. People don't automatically side with officers anymore. Shaq Brewster, want to go back out to you outside because we have – Okay, it doesn't look like we have Shaquille Brewster anymore. Um, but Barbara Quaid, one, one aspect of the trial that I want to ask you about, the state called 25 witnesses. The defense called eight witnesses, including Kim Potter. The state didn't call any rebuttal witnesses. We know that it's the state's burden of proof uh, to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, but, but even just simply from the numbers or maybe the power of veracity uh, of those witnesses, does it say anything about the defense um, in terms of only eight witnesses, or, or is that pretty much par for the course in terms of this breakdown? Yeah, actually, eight witnesses is, is a, a fairly high number for defense, uh, a defense case. Most often, the defense puts on no defense at all and simply argues that the prosecution has failed to meet its burden of proving each and every element of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, and if they can just, uh, you know, cast doubt about intent or uh, what happened, that can often be enough. In a case like this, uh, where there was already this recorded uh, testimony or re recorded statements of Kim Potter, I think her own testimony was probably about the only way she had a shot of an acquittal to just engender some sympathy from the jury um, and maybe to uh, you know demonstrate the, the backing of her police off her police chief and others that what she did was reasonable under the circumstances. Um, but it's probably more of a defense than most defendants put on. And then the, the no rebuttal, again, also doesn't surprise me. I think it signals that the prosecution thought that they had already made a strong case, that they didn't need to say anything more about uh, her guilt. They didn't need to respond to her testimony because the evidence they had already heard was sufficient. I thought the defense itself maybe was even too much because rather than just saying, no, she wasn't reckless or no, she wasn't negligent, they put in a little bit of an inconsistent defense. One of the things they said was, well, she wasn't reckless and she wasn't negligent, and she could have used deadly force anyway. And I think those two arguments are really inconsistent with each other. Um, 
maybe maybe she could have used, but we had experts come in and say, no, she couldn't have used it. So which is it? Could she have used deadly force, or is it the case that she wasn't reckless or negligent? And I think that inconsistency that came through in her case may have actually harmed her defense. Though, um, as we said, I think the prosecution put on a strong case, and it's usually not, you know, lawyers take a lot of credit or a lot of blame for winning or losing cases, but at the end of the day, it's really about the facts, and here the facts, I think, were just too powerful for this jury to ignore. We do have Shaquille Brewster again outside that courthouse. Want to go out to him. Shaq, I know that you've been um, talking to people in, in between moments when you're talking with us. What are you hearing? What's the mood like out there? Well, I'll tell you, there was one moment I started to describe this for you, and the moments after that verdict was being read, where you had a band playing, you had people dancing and celebrating, and that's where I met Elul here, because you were part of that circle. You were almost celebrating. You looked excited when you heard that yeah. verdict. Explain what we were witnessing when that moment happened. Um, we were witnessing accountability for Kim Potter, and that was for killing Dante Wright, um, a 20-year-old, now 20-year-old um, driver that was... A young kid that also had a kid, um, but I just want people to know that it's not um, justice. It's more accountability than anything. Um, it is a step towards the right thing, but we have so many other black people that have gotten killed by police, um, and this is just one of them. And explain, I mean, you know, this is a little bit different than the Chauvin verdict, where you had everyone watching every moment yeah. of that. What was the level of attention that members of the community, people like you, were yeah. paying to this trial? Um, I was here every day, not outside. I was inside, actually. Um, some of it with the family, some of it with just community members. Um, for the Chauvin trial, it was so many people because like the video was 10 minutes long of um, a cop killing Derek killing George Floyd um, so it was a lot more people watching um, which is which is good but the level of you know hypeness has calmed down because this is you know the video just came out and um, I was watching very closely I know me and my friends were very anxious about this and very um, scared that she was gonna get non-guilty um, but yeah it was, it was good to hear guilty on both counts. And explain that fear that you had. What was it that put that doubt in your heart and in your mind that you were going to be able to celebrate a guilty verdict? Yeah, um, I was scared because I know Kim Potter is a danger to BIPOC people, specifically black people, too. Um, she was a part of Kobe Heisler's death for telling two cops to turn off their camera. And it was just like a fear of maybe even running into her... Um, anywhere and her killing me like it was a fear of like me and my BIPOC friends um, running into people like her people that don't get accountability or do that don't have to deal with um, any of their actions so it was it was scary for that and it's good to know that she is locked up Last one for you. I mean, this is a jury that spent 27 hours deliberating yeah. over the course of four days. Do you draw any conclusion from that? Does that tell you anything about the yeah. system as a whole? Yeah, I think, um, I feel like I have this assumption of one person saying that she is guilty and the rest saying non-guilty. And it just kind of gives me hope of, you know, people can change their minds. And the system is still, the system is not broken. It's working the way it's supposed to, is to protect white people. So I didn't have any type of hope, but it does give me a little bit of hope and humanity, not the system. So um, shout out to that. I think it's two people that were trying to get it to change to guilty. Shout out to those two people. Um, 
yeah, it's just happiness, joy. There's music. I'll show, I'll show the music yeah. in a little bit. Little, thank you so much for talking with us and letting us do this interview. And Lindsay, if I have a second, tell me if I don't, but I just want you to see some of the atmosphere a little bit that's out here. I mentioned that there was a band playing. Well, it stopped because Dante Wright's family started speaking, but they have since left. And you see the band playing right here. You see a young woman dancing here. And I'll tell you, this is a full circle of people who was doing this before. And there's signs out here. You see justice for Dante Wright, racism is not an accident these are the messages that you continue to hear and it's the idea that again it's not just about dante Wright, it's not just about kim potter but it's the push to have a systemic change that you continue to hear and that's what you're seeing a little bit out here as people uh, are starting to it seems as if uh, now that the family is going they're starting to head off and go to their next destination Shaquille Brewster there live outside the courthouse. Also, our thanks to Barbara McQuaid and Joseph Tully, um, who, who have been so instrumental in our coverage. Joseph's going to stick around. Our thanks as well to Carmen Best um, as we uh, really approach uh, the, the end here of these two guilty verdicts against Kim Potter, uh, the former Brooklyn Center police officer who killed Dante Wright uh, during a routine traffic stop. We're going to have much more on this breaking news coverage ahead at the top of the hour. Again, Joseph Telly will be joining us. Shaquille Brewster will be joining us as well. And we will be talking uh, more about the family's reaction. So stay with us.